Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Mormonism's Modesty and Sexuality Discourse, originally produced and published by the Mormon Matters Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Mormon Matters Podcast. This is your host, Dan Weatherspoon. For those who follow Mormonism closely, many will be aware that the ensign comes out online before it ever hits homes. And so even beginning in the middle of February, we were talking about the March issue and especially the fact that uh, they featured a story. And I guess by featuring, I mean, it's in the largest print upon the cover of the magazine, an article by Tad R. Callister, Elder Callister, called The Lord's Standard of Morality. And it's created quite a bit of buzz, and I thought it would be important that we just have a good conversation. It's been a while since we've talked about that, uh, that subject of sexuality and messaging about modesty and, and things like that. And uh, among the people who've been talking about it, either through their, their own blogs or uh, being quoted in the newspaper and things like that, as this has sort of become a public discussion are the two wonderful people that I have with us today, Natasha Helfer-Parker and Jennifer Finlayson-Fife. So I'm thrilled to have them, and I just want to welcome, first of all, Natasha back to the podcast. Would you please quickly remind everybody a little bit about who you are? Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be back on. Um, Yeah, I'm a marriage and family therapist. I'm also a sex therapist, and I've been working for about 15 years now, and primarily with LDS clients and run my blog and get a lot of great questions and comments from readers. And um, I wrote this piece kind of uh, critiquing some of Callister's ways of, of positing this message. And I guess that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, that certainly was a trigger for it. Um, it was interesting. I had you on uh, last April, so almost a year ago, and it was on a topic where we talked about teaching healthy messaging about sexuality and things. And you were mentioning this talk when it was just a talk at BYU-Idaho, and so it's been on your radar long before it made it to the ensign. And so uh, for anybody who's interested, uh, last April we did have a, a, a topic on a, a similar podcast to, the, to this one, but uh, with slightly different angles. But Thank you for being on. Your blog is over at Pathios, and it's called The Mormon Therapist, right? Correct. Great. Jennifer Finless and Fife, welcome back to Mormon Matters. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, and you've been widely quoted lately in some of the online pieces uh, about this talk, or at least about this subject. And then what also drew me drew attention to you for me was in the most recent Exponent 2 magazine. You wrote a wonderful piece called Moderating the Mormon Discourse on Modesty. And mm-hmm. uh, so thank you for that piece, and we'll be talking about some of the insights from that as well. But give us a, a bit of your background. Sure. Let's see. I live in Chicago, Illinois. I grew up in Burlington, Vermont, and I went to BYU as an undergrad and studied psychology and women's studies, and then I got my PhD at Boston College in counseling psychology, and I have a private practice here in Chicago, and I work primarily with LDS couples and predominantly with remote LDS couples, actually, because I wrote my dissertation on Mormon women and sexuality, looking specifically at the effect of patriarchy and sexual conservatism in affecting women's sexual agency. And so I have kind of a niche clientele in, in working with couples around sexual issues. And so I do a lot over the internet. And you, you give workshops around the country yeah, and stuff too. that's right. I give workshops and teach online classes as well to LDS couples. So 
So yeah, and, and I'm married and have three kids. Great. Well, thanks for being back on. We always love it when you're here. One of the things, just to quickly frame it for our listeners again, and Mormon Matters, most people who who come here recognize that what we're what we're doing for the most part, uh, most of my guests are LDS, active, making things work, and so when talks come along or when things happen within the church that make the church feel a little bit narrower, a little bit sad or a little bit more, gosh darn it, I wish this was better, you know, than, than it is kind of thing. We, uh, we tend to, to want to do my, my, at least my goal, at least when, when these topics come up for one of our conversations is to, you know, prepare us for it as active Latter-day Saints. Like something like a, a featured article in the Ensign is going to be now quoted. It's going to be, you know, lessons are going to be drawn from it and things like that. And so we're going to be hearing some of these things in our discourse, or perhaps we'll be tasked to teach lessons or something on these subjects, and we'll go to it. So this, the goal, basically, of these podcasts is, is not to rip or to to be super, super negative, but to simply say, what is good positive messaging, and when some of the the problematic areas come up, what can we have positively to say that uh, could lead the discussion to be better, more forthright, and and, uh, and a few different things like that. But anyway, our, we're just improving discussion is, I guess, where we're aiming for. So we thought we'd uh, di- divide this up into two halves. We'd, we'd start with the first half on the modesty issues. And Jennifer, since your Exponent 2 piece was on that, I thought I would just throw to you to kind of lay out some of the the pieces on modesty that caught your attention. So Jennifer, the third paragraph in your article begins with the idea that the cultural meaning of this expectation, and by this uh, you're referring to that it's important for women to cover up, to 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 be in somewhat, um, don't be te- don't be the temptress, don't be the one that might. Uh, you know, take a guy's thoughts in a certain direction or something like that. Um, it's extraordinarily costly to them because it represents dispro- women's disproportionate shouldering of our sh- shouldering of our shared sexual anxiety. Mm-hmm. While many would argue that modesty protects women from sexual objectification and evaluation, I suggest that the rhetoric of modesty does precisely the opposite. And that was just a, a a wonderful, wonderful piece that I think sets up the entire article that you did. You're, you're saying, you know, it's designed to do this, but it's actually doing worse. And later on, you begin to talk about, um, you know, it's designed to, our talk about our body is designed to, you know, help us to enjoy our body, but it makes us more even objectifying and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so tell us about this sort of weird, here's the intention, here's the effect mismatch. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I see it is that, you know, we, we have several thoughts, but first of all, I mean, we are a sexually conservative faith, obviously. You know, we believe in the legitimacy and value of sexuality, but in a very prescribed context. And so, you know, there are many upsides to that approach to sexuality, in my opinion, because it elevates its symbolic meaning, its protective there, you know, there's a lot of research that suggests the later you have sexual intercourse, the more stable one's relationships are. So there's a lot of good things about this, just from a pragmatic, if you just take it away from what God wants, just pragmatically speaking, there's a lot of upsides to sexual conservatism. But in any group that avows it, you know, there's a lot more sexual anxiety, because if you're going to say sexuality is reserved for a very particular, very specific time and place, 
then there can be a lot of angst about sexual thoughts that sort of and sexual feelings that fall out outside of what is considered acceptable and so i argue that in a patriarchal faith that ours is then women through the gender discourse that sort of ascribes less sexuality less sexual desire to women than to men you know then women are seen as kind of the sober drivers in sexual relationships right, right? they're the ones that you know, therefore are less sexual and we elevate them for that. We, we say women are really good because they don't have those hedonistic urges. But then we basically say, then, then we shoulder women with this responsibility. So we construct men as the sort of legitimately sexual ones, but they have to white knuckle it, you know, keep a handle on this. And it's, you know, how men sort of prove their goodness is through managing their sexuality. Right, so there is a lot of pressure put on Mormon men. There is no question about that. But then women are seen more as the temptresses, the ones that are going to pull them down. And so women get this burden in the discourse around modesty that they have to kind of cover up and manage men's sexual thoughts. You know, basically the idea is men are barely keeping you know a handle on this, and so women are therefore responsible by masking and and covering their sexuality, their sexual desirability uh, as sort of their moral responsibility. And so, you know, this has several problematic meanings for women, the, not the least of which is that you've sort of denied women of the legitimacy of their sexuality, which is a lot of what my dissertation looks at, because we talk to men about desire, but we talk to women about desirability. Right. And part of the way that you're desirable as a woman is by managing and not expressing any of this sexuality, but more importantly, don't don't let anybody use you. Basically, don't don't be the licked cupcake or the you know the the chewed gum and so on. But this is about being acted upon, right? This is not about being actors in the sexual realm. So you first strip women of their sexuality, but then you give them this added responsibility that's not their responsibility. There's there's no way that you can. If you say that it is to be modest to basically not wear anything that would induce sexual thoughts in a man, it's a very complicated way to talk to somebody about what it means to be modest because no one can control what kinds of thoughts a man around her is going to have. And there's no way that anybody can completely mask their sexuality, right? So, you know, in, in cultures where women only have their eyebrows and their wrists showing, you know, people still will sexualize their wrists. <laughs> right. So it's it's not like um, you can mask the entirety of your sexuality. And so, but, but basically, you know, now have burdened women with something they can't actually have control over. And it, it has a repressive effect. And it has a, not to mention that I think it can actually, I don't talk about this in, article, in the article, but I think it actually can breed contempt in men when they feel like, you know, women are wearing the wrong things and they are tempting them and they are, you know, inducing sexual thoughts that are undermining their spirituality, that there is an inherent contempt in that discourse that, that I think is present. Yeah. And you actually lead the article off with that whole thing where this woman was studying in the library at BYU wearing what mm -hmm. looks to everyone else like very moderate or modest uh, yeah. clothing, normal BYU standards kind of clothing. And he sends her, he drops a note off privately that's basically saying, would you 
you know, realize what right. you're doing to guys like me, you know, or yes. whatever. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's this, so, so we, we, we want to protect women. So, you know, the whole idea was, um, you want them to be protected. You want them to not be devalued, mm-hmm. you know, objectified, et cetera. And yet by, for, by forcing so much attention on, how you dress and stuff, you are, like you say, shouldering them with the extra responsibility of not only managing mm-hmm. their own sexual thoughts and desires, and we'll get into that definitely in this podcast, mm-hmm. but... Right, and and what I would say to that is I can understand why we're talking to women about the notion of protecting themselves, and I, and because we live in a highly sexualized culture, and women are more objectified than ever, right? So, you know, women's sexuality uh, is kind of used all the time and girls today are often taught that so they should use their sexuality to entice men and it's a very devaluing message to young women and it's a very unfortunate one so I can see why a well-intentioned parent or young women's leader is going to talk to them about you know don't do this to yourselves cover up and and there's value in that message so I'm certainly not someone who's saying there's no value in the message of modesty but when we say look you don't have to dress immodestly to get men's attention to get their sexual attention it's no different to say you know you will displease men if you are too sexual so we're we're basically still objectifying women by saying you can't be too sexual or you will lose the the pleasure of men you will lose the um you will be devalued by men if you are seen as immodest so we just give another way to measure women and their goodness we're not talking to women around their intention the way they're relating to their bodies the way they're relating to men those are very important conversations to be having which we can talk about later but so I'm not saying, gosh, modesty, you know, we should all be walking around in, you know, halter tops and we'd all be better off. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, we need a different way to talk to women uh, around their own strength and the legitimacy of their sexuality and owning their sexuality and being in a respectful engagement with themselves and with others. Awesome. Natasha, either your own thoughts upon some of the same themes here, or do you want to go ahead and bring in some of the messaging from the Ensign article at this point? No, I just want to, well, first of all, there's really nothing Jennifer will say that I don't agree with, so... Let's get that out of the way right here. (laughs) I don't need to either further or go against anything she says, but one thing I did want to just add to the conversation here at this point is making sure that we don't criminalize this idea of of wanting sexual attention to begin with. I mean, I think there's something about the dating process and, you know, our single young adults and of course our adolescents that there's something normal about wanting to attract attention, sure. you know, and wanting somebody to like you and and so and we and we attract attention to ourselves of course by all different kinds of ways, but clothing and appearance is one of those ways and some of those are seen as legitimate ways and some of them not so much you know so whether it's the clothing we wear or the makeup we use or the talents we show off or you know all those things so there's there's nothing wrong with wanting to be attractive or want somebody that you are having feelings for find you attractive and so i just want to be careful how we posit that because a lot of times i think that is an underlying issue is, uh, of this conversation is that somehow that drawing attention to yourself in any way, shape, or form is bad. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And so, Natasha, what what is it 
you know, again, if if this was prompted by the Elder Callister talk or the Ensign article is what we'll call it now, what was it in there that, that struck you as, you know, going past the right proper line for this in, in the modesty section? Well, adding to what Jennifer said, which I'm not sure how much more to add to that, but it's just the piece of... I'm always concerned that modesty is as a word in of itself is is usually about ninety five to ninety nine percent of the time in my experience only couched in terms of clothing right. when I think the idea of modesty is just such a such a underlying principle that's so important to our lives in so many different aspects of our lives um just being modest in our self perception and our in our speech and in our wealth and, and you know all of these things that have to do with leading a modest life. And so I feel like we really shortchange our kiddos when we teach them about modesty as a principle, because it's so focused on clothing only. And then um, I do think that the, that the modesty discourse is both offensive to both, you know, to to men and women, because it does treat men in the sense of it almost gives them this expectation that we expect you to have problems with not being able to control your thoughts around women who you might find sexually attractive or, or dressed in a sexually attractive way. And of course that is complicated. Like Jennifer said to depending on which culture you're in and which state you're in, you know, if you're in California versus maybe North Dakota, there may be different ideas of what being modest even is, you know, as far as just the weather and and all of those things. So, you know, we find like, I I remember having a client tell me, you know, when I went to Brazil on my mission and I had my Brazilian companion and we'd be walking down the streets, he didn't seem to have any issue with all these kind of immodestly dressed women, you know, and, and billboards that were very provocative and he'd lived around it all his life. And, and therefore he just kind of went along his way. Whereas for this missionary from the States, it was very provocative and he had a hard time learning how to manage that. So again, to Jennifer's point, I'm not saying, Oh, well, let's all dress provocatively so we can all get used to it. I'm not saying that, but I think that there's something about the message and the bubble that we try to create that doesn't allow us to correct, correctly mature sexually or develop, develop in a way that we can handle sexuality around us and recognize it as a normal part of human life and, and therefore act accordingly. And I think that's true for both men. And then of course, for women who feel this, responsibility. And, you know, and I just found that the comment that he said that you get the man that you dress for just, just really, um, I guess offensive is just the best word I can use, you know? Yeah. You two know that I interviewed my, uh, my daughter, my 20 year old daughter and her best friend who are college students. and, And that was the line that in his, in his talk that just like, no way that is just too simplistic. It was, you know, the, if I marry a tank top, that means I don't get to have, you know, a, a really, you know, mature, wonderful, spiritual guy and things like that. They just, they just thought it was silly as a, a message there. Well, and I think that this is an issue too that becomes more of a problem for us American Mormons as we become more of a global community, you know, and just even how we, we, we will define modest clothing in different cultures. So, you know, our sisters and brothers might dress very differently and, 
Africa or Polynesia or, you know, all these different places versus what we're used to in maybe Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, you know, Idaho. Right. So this becomes just an issue of something that I think needs some global awareness as well. Yeah, that's good. Now, Jana Reese helped to um, basically show the silliness of this uh, with uh, a role reversal piece that she wrote. Do you guys remember that from her? Her, uh, I'll, I'll link to it certainly in, in the links here. And so she basically took some of the the messaging that is often said, and including this particular line about you'll get the type of man you dress for, and she basically addresses to, especially for young men, you know, away with your shoulder-bearing tank tops during your pickup basketball games in the church gym, away with the low-slung jeans that drive girls crazy wondering by what defiance of physics your pants don't drop to your ankles. <laughs> You know, never exploit your great power over girls. You know, your life's purpose is to attract and hold the attentions of a mate, certainly, but you will get the type of woman you dress for. And so she basically, you know, that's sometimes the best way to show something is just by through role reversal. So, yeah, so this, again, did have the the emphasis upon uh, women particularly can dress modestly and in the process contribute to their own self-respect and to the moral purity of men, but there was no and vice versa here, you know, uh, in, in the, in the piece, just what, before we leave modesty as, you know, our, our major subject area, one of the things is, uh, I think both of you brought it up. Um, I'm, 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 you know, I've read both of you just in the last hour, uh, re- refreshing myself, but, uh, the, the story in the friend about Hannah mm-hmm. and just at this young, young age, Talk about that a little bit. Well, m- well, my problem with uh, talking to you know young girls about dressing modestly is that you are basically how to say it you are sexualizing them inadvertently, right? So in you know without intending to, you're already drawing to girls' attention the notion of male gaze and their own sexuality and to be anxious about their bodies and the exposure of their bodies. And, you know, um, I think also wrapping God around it also, like the spirits bearing witness to the little girl not to buy the sleeveless orange shirt, like that God also is anxious about her sexuality. And it just feels like a burden that's so wrong to give to a seven-year-old girl who, you know, I have a seven-year-old daughter who's just not thinking about that, who right. is free in her body, is is comfortable, and is thinking about all the things that her body does, you know, dance and play the violin and all these things. She's not thinking about male gaze, right? right. And it's it's so prevalent in our culture that it seems a shame to already sort of invoke that meaning. The problem is male is 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 not male gaze. I don't want to say that. The problem is the sexualization of women and the objectification of women. That needs to be addressed. But then you need to be talking to the men, and you need to be addressing the problem in the culture at large. Yes. And so, I have more to say about that about the sexual objectification piece. But but I don't know if, if uh, Natasha, you have other thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's horribly unfair. I mean, I I grew up for probably the first, well, I think until I was about eight years old in Spain. And I remember going to the beach or any type of public swimming area. And all of us young girls were dressed 
pretty much similarly to the boys, you know, with only um, shorts on or some type of, you know, genital covering area. So our, our chests were free because we looked exactly like the boys. Mm-hmm. And so there was no, um, again, that freedom of not having to worry about something that really wasn't of our age, you know, and wasn't appropriate for us to be worrying about. And I think I've heard, you know, more faithful people talk about, well, you know, the sooner that you put um, kind of habits down, then the easier it is as an adult to kind of keep up with those habits, you know, so that idea that at some point in your life as a woman, you're going to cover your your breast area, again, depending on the culture you live in, um, because we sexualize breasts a lot in, in our culture, whereas other cultures don't necessarily do that. But again, I just don't agree that that's that's the responsibility of a young seven-year-old to be worrying about that. And, and, and I think it, it really shows more the anxiety of us adults that we're projecting onto our children. Right. Right. Good. Good. It was interesting for me when I asked my daughter what it meant, you know, she and her best friend, what it meant to, you know, at least as it's being translated for her and her roommates and, and the people her age, she thought that the, the standard was garment ready. And that just dawned on me that, you know, when this, the the story of Hannah, who was going to wear a sundress to the zoo, her grandmother bought her one. And I'm guessing it just had the one strap, you know, spaghetti strap or whatever it would have been. And then she goes and gets the t-shirt on under it and says, now I can go. And it was this idea again of shoulders, which is a part of the garment ready you know, thing as well as the length of your, either your shorts or your dresses being, you know, where, where the garment would come at least mid thigh or pretty close to the knee, things like that. So just if that's the standard that's being taught, when would you guys want to start talking to a a young person about that stuff? What's, you know, we're, we're saying it's way too young, you know, it's sort of the stories in the friends, but when, when do you think that would be appropriate if you think it's appropriate? Well, I'm I'm just going to say, I I think one of the things to, to start thinking about is, is garment ready, the only way to be modest. And I'm not sure that's the case. I think that garments are part of an adult ritual that, those of us who choose to go through that ritual choose to make that type of commitment. And therefore wearing the garment is, is a piece of that commitment. And we tend to understand that that's going to affect our wardrobe. I'm not sure that that's the same measure of modesty that we should be placing onto our, you know, young adolescents and young adult, young adults who haven't made that commitment as of yet. And I'm not sure it's the only way to be modest. Um, right. Right. So that's that's one thing right away. And then um, I guess, well, I'll, Jennifer, I'll, I lost my train of thought, so I'll let you go on. Sure. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's that it's part of the problem. When we talk about immodest at church, we really are kind of referencing that idea of having sleeves and having a skirt to the knee and so on, rather than when I think about modesty, it's I think we should be thinking more around um, – you know, context and intention. Exactly. Um, and that's really the proper focus because, you know, clearly we're comfortable with shoulders showing if we're going to award pool party, right? <laughs> Men are able to manage themselves there, it appears. Um, 
it seems like, you know, what your intention is and how you're relating to yourself and other people is what we should be talking to adolescents about. I would also say, I mean, I think garments are somewhat arbitrary. I know that my grandmother's garments went to her wrists and to her uh, ankles, at least my yeah. into her ankles, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so I don't, I mean, I think this is a decision that's been made around what we culturally think of as modest now, at least in our LDS culture. But again, that doesn't really, that doesn't, that's just an arbitrary decision. I'm not saying it's not a valuable uh, cultural distinction, nor am I saying that, you know, living by that couldn't be a, a good idea or generally what you might find yourself doing if you hadn't gone through the temple yet. But I don't think that's this whole idea of getting oneself ready. I would say the time to get yourself ready is before you go right before you go through the temple because now your clothing fashions are going to change. But I, I'm I'm not saying I would be telling my adolescents, you know, live it up, you know, wear you know, right. your shoulders right. bare. Right. I would just be talking to them about, again, how they're relating to their own bodies and how they're relating to others with it. And it's the same idea around sexual objectification and, and you know, being sexually provocative. Um, I have a lot I could say about that idea. But, yeah. you know, should I go with that right now? Sure. You know, I mean, I think that, like Natasha was saying, not only is there nothing wrong with wanting to attract a male, you know, I, I was actually taught the importance of doing that in young women. It's like makeup night, you know, beauty night, and then standards night, you know, keep your sexuality, you know, repressed and under control so that you will attract a man. Um, I think it's very normal to want male attention, but I think we set young women up into a paradox where we basically tell them that their value is highly dependent upon being wanted. And we also you know, kind of the underlying message in all the modesty discourse is that there's a, you have a lot of power in your sexuality. And so it's a way of actually suggesting to women this is a power that they have in a culture where they feel that they inherently have less power. And so it makes it very enticing to want to use your sexuality if you feel that that is the most important thing is to get a man's approval that to, you want to use that to entice or draw someone to you, but in an unhealthy way. So I'm, I'm not saying that it's unhealthy to do that, but that you're basically have too limited a view of yourself and what makes you someone who's worthy of respect and love and commitment from someone else. I actually do have a way to legitimize when he said, you know, you get the type of man you dress for. The only way that, that the way that I can see that as a statement that makes any sense is that if you will if you will devalue yourself enough to say that the only thing that is value about you is your sexual availability, you may find someone who will agree with you on that. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, but I but the problem with how Elder Callister handles it is he's not talking to young women about the fact that they are so much more than their sexuality, that they right. are so much more, you know, and that, that we live in a culture that reduces them to that. He's not talking about that. And so in the context in which he says it, it's highly problematic, in my opinion. Well, and I think what you're getting at is this concept of self-esteem, right? And, and how much of um, a boy liking me or a girl liking me, if I'm a male, is is attached to how I feel about myself, which I think for adolescents, that's a real deal, you know, for a lot of them. There's a lot of social pressure or um, that that type of, I don't know, popularity game that happens in a lot of high schools, you know, and so a lot of your value of yourself 
is placed upon this idea of, am I attractive? Am I attracting, you know, this boy that I want to be with? And, and then we place a lot of our own personal value in that. And I think that's a really great conversation to be having with both young men and young women, you know, as far as it's, it's okay to have heartbreaks. It's okay. You know, when things don't go the way we want to, or, um, you know, how, how far are we willing to sell ourselves short in order to make somebody else happy? Right. Mm-hmm. And so those are, I think, really important concepts. And then to your point, Dan, as far as I remember now the question you asked, you know, what age should we start talking about modesty and, and these types of issues? I mean, I don't know that there's any magic age. I mean, obviously, puberty is when our bodies start changing and a lot of conversations should be happening around that time. But I know I've got elementary school age children, too, who notice, you know, the Super Bowl ads with the sexy bikinis and, you know, make comments and are giggling. And, you know, I I find those opportunities really helpful to start talking about, you know, so what, why are we giggling? You know, why is this making us a little bit nervous? Or um, what do we think about, you know, ways that different people dress? And, you know, what, you know, and it wasn't just women, there was some good male underwear ads this time. So at least I was glad to see that there were both. (laughs) David Beckham. Yeah. Yeah. There were, (laughs) there were opportunities for both genders to to (laughs) discuss this issue. So, um, and then how do we normalize that? You know, how do we normalize it in the sense that, yeah, it, it does draw our attention and, you know, this is maybe the reasons why it draws our attention and you're not necessarily a bad person because it's drawing your attention, but what should we do about that? Or how should we feel about it? Or what, how does that, play into our values and our family, you know, and do we want to be doing those things? And so those are really good ways to segue, I think, into some really rich conversations, even with elementary age kids. Very good. Yeah. And as my daughter and her friend mentioned, garment ready is sort of what they think is the traditional, what it means to be modestly dressed or something, you know, in this college culture that they're immersed in. They wear tank tops themselves. They, you know, wear shorts that are, you know, certainly not the short, short, short shorts, but, you know, regular shorts. And, but one of the phrases that I thought that was interesting that they kind of said is, you know, we just don't want, and we're always asking each other now, if I'm wearing this, I don't look like that girl, you know, the, and put that in quotation marks. And it was that girl that is obviously trying to attract attention through her dress, trying to, you know, use that, uh, that sexuality to, to draw attention to herself and to, and to be uh, provocative in some way and, and to, you know, induce those kinds of thoughts. So it was interesting that, uh, you know, how they negotiated the fact that they both wear bikinis at certain times and other times they don't, you know, they, they, they're welcome. They go through the park or they go to the gym or something and they're not worried about in being in garment ready, you know, a dress and things like that. So even though they all plan to, you know, they're both planning on temple marriages and things. Is there anything else? The one of the, just, it's a random thing because it's come up in the discussion. And I, I think it's Natasha, you bring it up in your response to the, to the article and you you use the term rape culture, so let's just quickly define it because I my my worry is if if somebody were to use this phrase, you know, it, it's such a jarring phrase, you know, to to say this this kind of discourse contributes to rape culture. What would be several sentences that you guys would use to flesh out what that what that actually means? Well, I I understand that any time you use the word rape in any type of 
phrase, it's it's going to be a provocative term, you know, it elicits a lot of anxiety and fear and as it should. And, um, and I, and I know I got some pushback on this as far as somehow implying that Callister was, you know, saying it was okay to, to rape or and of course that's not true. And I don't believe that one bit of what Callister's trying to say here, but the way that I would define rape culture is, is any type of responsibility that's given to the victim as part of why the rape occurred. And so rape culture, like most things in life, runs a huge spectrum. I mean, you do have societies where rape is considered, you know, an okay way to punish or where rape is not, you know, is completely um, put on the shoulders of the woman and the woman is stoned after she's raped or, I mean, that's one end of the spectrum. Or forced to marry her rapist, yeah. Right, exactly. But then on the other side of the spectrum, which is still very much a part of rape culture, um, I think is where the United States falls and other more um, civilized countries, I guess, is how I would say it, is this idea that, yeah, of course rape is wrong and that should never happen. But geez, if she hadn't, you know, been in that alley way or if she hadn't been at that party drinking or if she hadn't been wearing that really tight skirt that was really inappropriate, maybe that wouldn't have happened to her. And And that is still very much a part of what I think you know, is part of that rape culture um, word. So that's what I was trying to get at, is that many times our own biases are not um, clear to us until we're educated on these types of issues. So I remember, like, just as part of my therapy training and other and other trainings that I've been a part of for different employment, it, you know, types of scenarios I've been at, we usually go through training that has to do with racism and sexism. And, and all of a sudden you're realizing, geez, I didn't realize I kind of had that belief or thought or because people are there educating you, even though I would have not considered myself a racist or a sexist, I'm recognizing now through training that maybe I am upholding some of those views that are very cultural and hard for us to know that we even think them. So that's what I was trying to point out. Jennifer, any thoughts on that term rape culture? Is it one that you would ever use in like a Sunday setting? Probably. I'm going to no. guess probably not. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, because it just, you know, just like Natasha's saying, it's, it is so provocative and it, it gets people's defenses up. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's, it's very, I mean, there's just so much I could say about it, but you know, I was looking at statistics today on the incidence of rape and often in cultures where it's both sexually conservative and highly patriarchal rape is much, the incidence is much higher. So like in Muslim countries where women are the most clothed, right? So if you're going to say that somehow women dressing provocatively causes rape, I don't think there's any data to support that idea. So in, you know, um, in predominantly Muslim countries that rape incidence is extremely high and so, you know, and I think it has more to do with contempt for women and their sexuality, that there's a justification that um, they're seen as they have lesser status and, and therefore there's sort of a justification to that, you, you know, you somehow compelled me because your sexuality has control over me right. and, you know, you're too desirable and therefore I have a right to take from you. Um, obviously I don't think that's, nobody would legitimize that idea in the church by any stretch in an overt sense, but I do think we foster contempt, you know, like 
I think it was in Peggy Fletcher Stack's article, Brad Kramer talked about this idea that in in his experience of elders on the mission, that there was often a lot of anger and um, judgment of young women who were scantily clad in some way because they were inducing sexual thoughts in the men, so to speak. And so where men were expected to really have full control over these sexual impulses and thoughts, that then it was easy to blame the women for inducing those thoughts. And this is just a very problematic part of the way we talk about this for two reasons. One is I'm not ready to say that men having sexual thoughts or being drawn to women's sexuality is problematic. To be drawn to a woman and her sexual beauty or, you know, to, to, be, to notice her beauty and even feel that attraction or that response, I think that's important, right? But it is problematic what you may do next, which is if you will objectify her and reduce her to an object for your gratification, I would say that is disrespectful. That is sinful. But I mean, I think there's so much anxiety about having sexual desire at all that that it breeds that contempt towards women and their sexuality. Similarly, I would say, you know, I think respect for self and respect for others should be the guide for how we we dress and how we engage with one another. So I may, you know, if you're single and you want to entice someone towards you, you can do that uh, and be respectful of yourself at the same time, that you can be drawn to someone and be respectful of them at the same time, right? So I think it has, it really needs to be a conversation more around respect for self and other. So good. You know, and before we leave modesty, and you're hitting on this same subject, there's a quote by Elder Holland. It was actually given when he was BYU president. It would be wonderful to find this messaging in a contemporary, more contemporary setting as a, when he was as general authority. But are you, do you guys are aware of what it was? It's in the Peggy Fletcher Stack article, and it's also in this really good blog post that my, my daughter alerted me to, which is called Modest is Not Hottest. It was a great mm-hmm. title for her thing. And he's and And he basically, Elder Holland says, I've heard all my life that it is the young woman who has to assume the responsibility for controlling the limits of intimacy and courtship because a young man cannot. What an unacceptable response to such a serious issue, um, exclamation point. Then he kind of rips on him, you know, goes on a little bit more and says... uh, this, no, I'm sorry, this drugstore psychology would have us just say, he can't help himself. His glands have complete control over his life, his mind, his will, and his entire future. I refuse to buy some man's feign innocence who wants to sin and call it psychology. And uh, this is this great line about, uh, you know, what you just said, you know, yeah, you're going to have these sexual responses and things like this, but you cannot say that it's out of your hands. I've had two thoughts, I guess, as we're talking through some of these things. I mean, one thing that I've heard happen quite a bit in my um, geographical area, in my wards and stakes, is this idea of mothers coming up to young women and saying, you know, I really don't appreciate the way you're dressed because I have a, a young man, you know, and you're not helping my young man, um, I don't know, whatever, have pure thoughts during church or something along those lines. And and so I just want to, you know, just say that I think that's a very inappropriate way to, to address young women. And again, if, if that's a concern or that's an issue, that's a conversation you should be having with your young man. And also I would assume that the young man might be um, 
mortified <laughs> to know for sure, that, for that sure. his mother is saying something like this anyway. Wasn't there a few, a few a few months ago there was this blog post about some woman writing, some mother writing to, I don't know if it was like an open letter to young girls and about her sons and wasn't yeah. there something that was really, really got quite a firestorm going? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the this is the kind of stuff that that I categorize under, you know, my provocative term of rape culture. And so um but I think it's important because again, it's important to understand that and I think there's some anxiety about even our sons being sexual. I think there's a lot of anxiety um about pornography and um you know, immodest thoughts and just our men in general, how we address men in the church with sexuality. And so as mothers or parents of young men, that's an anxiety that, again, I think we project onto them. And we need to be careful uh, what type of either self-fulfilling prophecies we're engendering. Yes. Can be problematic, yeah. Or um, and how we frame a young man's sexual label of himself, right? So in other words, understanding that desire is normal and actually like Jennifer said, healthy and you're supposed to feel desire. Otherwise there might be other issues going on. And then, you know, how do we manage desire? And um, if you find young women attractive, how do we manage that? And how do we, you know, the many things that she's already said, you know, how do we be respectful to them and to our friends and to, because, and again, I, I don't know about people in Utah necessarily because I don't live in Utah, but I would imagine even in Utah, you're going to school with lots of different types of friends, you know, Mormon friends, non-Mormon friends, and all with different ideas of what modesty means. And, um, and again, you may get a young woman who feels very good about the way she's dressing and it may not fit into your idea of what is modest attire. And so, how do you manage that friendship? How do you manage, you know, you can't go out into the world and not know how to manage this part of yourself, both for women and men. And so I think it's just inappropriate to have those types of discussions with the opposite sex, and especially when it's not your child. Um, the le- the other thing I wanted to talk about is Jennifer was speaking to rape occurring at a higher rate in, in countries where it's, there's more traditional or patriarchal values around sexuality is this concept that we hear all the time at church that somehow we are in the worst sexual times ever. And I really like to complicate that somewhat because I I really like to draw upon our principle, our Mormon principle, there's opposition in all things. And do we live in a world where there's more freedom than ever? And by that, I mean our American world or European world um, to dress in any way that you want to. Yes. Do we live in a world where there's more uh, ability to look at pictures of naked men and women? Yes. So yes, we do live in that environment. At the same time, because those freedoms are in place and those freedoms come basically because we see them as a human rights issue, there has also been a huge change in sexual accountability, So do we also in these countries live in a world where sexual criminality is taken much more seriously and where the accountability for that is much more serious? Yes. Do we have less sexual crime than probably ever before in these countries? Yes. So I I don't think it's fair to posit the church environment in this way that demonizes the sexual world around us 
and looks at it as all bad just because you can see, I don't know, Britney Spears and Madonna kissing on some video show or, you know, or something right, like that. Right. Yes, yes, there are those issues around us, but there also comes with it this legal and ethical accountability that we've never seen before that is hugely protective in our American culture today and that we are still needing to make a lot of progress on. I mean, we're nowhere near where we need to be, but we are way better than we were 100 years ago on these types of topics with child abuse and sexual abuse and um, sexual assault and, you know, no, you can't have sex with me just because I'm your wife or, you know, all these types of issues that were hugely problematic in the quote-unquote golden days or good old days that we tend to fantasize about. Right, exactly. It reminds me, you were on our, our is the world really going to hell in a handbasket issue episode that we did here at, at, at Mormon Matters. And it's definitely, that's something that comes up that these are the worst of times and it's so hard to, to offer those counterbalancing things. So thanks for that language. Great. And we don't, yeah, we don't celebrate it as a church culture. And I think that's, we're missing out on a huge part of our, of our progress as a human race right now. Terrific. Anything more on the modesty piece, you guys? We I definitely want to go into the messaging about women's sexuality and this sort of, you know, I'm naturally less sexual, and it, therefore it makes the, the, you know, the different kinds of, uh, you know, when those feelings are arising, you, the extra burdens of guilt and things like that. But is there anything before we go into all that stuff that you guys wanted to share any more on modesty? I just would maybe reiterate, and I think it's implicit in everything that we've been saying, but just that, you know, I would say there's, there is value in having a, a discussion and a discourse around modesty. It's just one where you're really talking to young women to see themselves as whole people that are in their beautiful, wonderful bodies and to embrace those bodies for all that they, for their beauty, for their, for your sexuality, but also for your ability to dance and, you know, all the wonderful things you can do in the world with your body and to be respectful of your body and respectful of others. But it's like inherently a kind of self-embracing that allows you to have a kind of freedom and strength in your body that then would allow you to both be comfortable in attracting and also not reducing yourself to a sexual object. You know, it's just in the way that we talk to women about who they are, we set up this problem. And we need to celebrate and honor women and all of their strengths as a, as a church culture so much more than we do. And I think it would, it's inherent to this modesty rhetoric and this issue of sexuality. Terrific. Anything else from you, Natasha? I, I second that. I think modesty is something that we definitely need to teach and uh, talk about and um, again, complicate further than just clothing. Great. Okay, you both are both therapists, and it sounds like most of your clients, especially you, Jennifer, are are folks that are generally struggling with sexual issues. What would you say is the main culprit in terms of the messaging about women and their own sexuality, especially women? But I guess we can go broader too. But what is the main thing that's leading towards uh, these unhappy situations to where they're seeking you out to 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 work with? Well, I would say this is you know primarily what my dissertation tackled, and you know I would say uh, as I suggested earlier in this um, 
podcast that we really the whole gender script really sets up that you know men are sort of naturally sexual and women are naturally less sexual and you know men desire and women are desirable and you know there's not really a discourse about desire for women in the church um again you know it's around attracting and securing and being sexually pure but not about your own desire and not just in the sexual realm i would say that's even true kind of outside of the sexual realm in terms of just you know we're so much more talk about accommodating other people's desires and nurturing and supporting and those are kind of inherent female roles and so we don't really teach women the art of desire the importance of desire and so i see a lot of women in my practice who i mean i i want to say this respectfully because i would say they tend to underfunction in their marriages and by that i mean they their their full strength is somewhat suppressed in the marriage and this affects not only their relationship to their spouse and to themselves but it 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 fundamentally undermines their relationship to their sexuality and so i think there's two pieces to that one is that they have not really been invited to celebrate their own sexuality and to see it as a part of their goodness for many women it feels you know kind of separate from being a good woman like in one of the presentations i was doing i talked about you know we don't have any models of a of a good mormon woman who also is sexual and loves sex, her sexuality and you know i was kind of setting up this idea of we don't have that notion really and someone in the group said i can't even comprehend what you're talking about like what would that even mean what would how could you be a good woman and to love sex and to be comfortable in your sexuality like it was that incongruent do 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 we have models of men though in our mormon culture no that's that, a very that... i think you're absolutely right and so one of the things is cuz i focus on women so much it 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 sometimes implies that men are all set around this and i think that's absolutely not true i mean i think we 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 think it's natural it doesn't undermine your masculinity to be sexual as a man like it might undermine right. your sense okay. of your femininity your femininity good but for men you still have to keep a tight handle on this um i do think our this is sort of a separate idea but i do think the discourse on sexuality in the church sort of hyper domesticates men so that there's anxiety around um you know how much of my sexuality and desire can i actually legitimately bring to my marriage um i think that's some of the the um conflict that often gets expressed through sort of taking your sexuality outside of the marriage to pornography and other um other more objectified forms of sex so i'm not implying that men have it all worked out but there's at least a notion that men can be sexual and still be masculine So I think for many women they just kind of separate from it and they see it as something that they offer to men that it's an accommodation of their husbands it's something they do if they're good you know like if you're really good you'll kind of take care of him sexually but it's not about really desiring about really yes. wanting and and I'm not here to say that all Mormon women are the low desire partners in their marriages or that all Mormon women haven't worked this out i don't think that's true but i would say disproportionately that is the case um meaning that the women are often the lower desire partners in at least the couples that i see and there's just more discomfort with um there there hasn't been sort of an open acknowledging or embracing of their sexuality and oftentimes in the context of marriage there's more pressure to stay disconnected from it because 
embracing it would be a way to almost feel like you have to put out more actually. So meaning it's almost like this is a way to kind of not have to, let's see, like be more open to you. Meaning if there's sort of inequality in the marriage or you have the sense that you are sort of always accommodating his desires, in a way it kind of works all right to just sort of distance yourself from your sexuality so that you don't have to bring more of your whole self to the relationship. And there's a lot more I could say about that idea, but I yeah, think that yeah. the dynamic in the marriage often not just makes people uncomfortable with their sexuality, it often is easy to sort of neglect it in that dynamic. Yeah, this is important and deep and complex. Is Natasha, I'll ask you first, is there actual explicit messaging that we need to be aware of, or is this all just implied in a patriarchal culture and a sexually conservative culture like ours, or is there, are there trigger words that we're, that we, whenever we hear them, we should be ready with some kind of hold on there, hold on there. This is, this is what this could lead to all this dysfunction that Jennifer's talking about. Is there a message to, to fight? Well, I think that any time that sexuality is posited in what I call shame-based or fear-based language, we start exacerbating these issues. And um, oftentimes, like even in this talk, you know, sexuality is referred to as pretty visually uh, disturbing um, concepts such as like an octopus's tentacles or the venom of a snake, um, you know, when we're discussing type of sexual issues. And again, it, it, it doesn't do much. I think again, it, it puts sexuality in the frame of danger and, and not that there aren't dangerous things about sexuality. There obviously are, but when that's like, again, disproportionate to the more positive messaging, which I think is very true for adolescents and young adults, which is really the only realm we talk about sexuality. And we don't really talk about marital sexuality much in Mormon culture. So oftentimes you'll get, you know, like 5% messaging saying, yes, sex is sacred. Sex is wonderful. Sex is a gift from God. And there's these good reasons to have sex such as having children and and bonding with your spouse, right? And so that's like 5% of the message. And then um, 95% of the message is, but don't do it in the wrong time, wrong place, you know, with the wrong person. So again, not that there's anything inherently wrong with both of those messages, but the proportion I think Mm -hmm. is off. And also how we discuss the dangers of it is, can be damaging because it's very difficult to, be scared of sex and its power and then move into marriage and have those scary feelings just magically go away just because you're married now. And then to Jennifer's point, you know, a lot of the messages that we do talk about are, you know, with women being nurturers, um, with men being the ones who have a harder time controlling their sexual urges. Um, I think again, it sets both men and women up for failure. Um, it's incredibly dismissive to those who don't fit into those categories. So again, when you have a higher libido woman in a marriage, now you're exacerbating the confusion she has about herself because she mm-hmm. gets she gets that she doesn't fit into this norm. Same for a lower libido male. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally agree with this issue of men not having 
their sexual prowess um, allowed in the sense, well, both men and women, but I'm going to focus on men for a minute here in the sense of, you know, when I talk about men, you know, like, so, you know, tell me about your Don Juan, you know, or tell me about, you know, what do you do to take your woman or anything of those natures? They just look at me like I'm, <laughs> you know, like, like, I don't know what you're talking about, lady, you know, and, 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 and first of all, I wouldn't do that to my wife. You know, I wouldn't take her, you know, I wouldn't um, do anything that she wouldn't want me to do. And, and, and so again, even in the context of safe, rela- and I'm talking about safe relationships now, I'm not talking about abusive relationships because you should never take somebody without them wanting to be taken. But I'm talking about this safe relational kind of sexual playfulness where you go back and forth and you play cat and mouse and you do all these kind of fun things as male and female in the culture that we're kind of growing, growing up in. There's no ability to really understand how that game is played. Because, again, sexual desire is wrong. I shouldn't want my wife just for sex. I shouldn't want things that she doesn't want. So I hear a lot of men not even really able to initiate sexuality until their wife initiates, which is if she's the lower libido partner, then that's not happening anyway. So now they're in a sexless marriage, right? Or it's done out of guilt, like I should do it now. Exactly, right. And it and so it kind of robs both male and female of these more complicated ways of nuancing sexuality. Um, and I think that and at any time that we label or put ourselves in a corner like this is how we're supposed to act as sexual adults or think or feel, then we suffer from that. And then most of us, the only <laughs> messages that really we've had about sexuality come from our adolescence. So I feel like a lot of LDS um, couples that I work with, and they would agree to this. I don't think this is offensive in a way, but we're we're kind of sexually immature. You know, we're not mm-hmm. necessarily yes. um, developed as sexual mature adults, and we're trying to figure that out. And I think that's what a lot of couples are trying to do in the work they do with me. And they 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 get you know they they agree with me on that. They they they're like, oh yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're of course not talking just Mormonism. We're talking about a big yeah. segment outside of Mormonism too, but yeah, definitely right. the, the messaging of uh, to be the one who's out of the norm. You're naturally less, you're less libido driven as a woman. And here's here that in some ways it almost can be like any libido, uh, especially before you're married is, is sinful, something right. to, to suppress. So yeah, again, I want to focus you guys, are, you know, it's it's clear on relationships how how complex they can get, but I just want to focus mostly on the messaging that kind of right. leads to these problems. Yeah. Well, can I say something about that, Dan? Which is, I think that, you know, what I really wish is that we would shift the frame to me more around uh, developing, you know, wisdom and um, good judgment in this as sexual beings rather than sort of trying to push down and fight against this sort of evil force. And I think that's that idea of sexual wisdom and, and good judgment and sort of a healthy integration of our sexuality and using it for good is closer to our theology than the notion that sexuality is sort of the serpent in the grass that's going to kind of pull us down. Because, I mean, I think, you know, as I've said on other podcasts, our, our theology embraces the body as part of right. our... Sex, I mean, our psychological and spiritual development. 
And so, you know, the ability, part of our earthly existence is to come here and to earn wisdom and earn good judgment through through making mistakes and, and through, you know, asserting moral choices. And so, but in the realm of sexuality, we are more ambivalent and anxious about it. And so we tend to frame it up as in this more um, bifurcated way, like that the body is good and all, but sexuality, we're not so sure. <laughs> and yeah. so, I mean, we give the language that it's good, but the underlying message that it's, we're afraid of it is much more powerful. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some anxiety about sexuality because it, it is a powerful way of relating to ourselves and to other people. And we need to be very wise in our judgments, but, but learning how to sort of see and acknowledge and integrate this important part of yourself and then use it for good in the way you relate to others I think is very, very related because the more you can sort of embrace the goodness of your sexuality, the easier it is to actually be respectful of other people and their sexuality. And the easier it is in when the time and the context is appropriate to share this part of yourself with your spouse. So I think that we could actually shape the message to be more congruent with our theology as I see it if we we're more reflective on the way we discuss it. Too much of the culture has permeated the church and the gospel, and we're trying to elevate that discourse to call it gospel, but I, I personally think it's wrong. I think it doesn't, it doesn't uh, help us as much as it could. Great. Great well, stuff. and another thing that I want to just talk about a little bit is anytime that you teach through fear or anxiety, um, and the research, I think, supports this because we know a lot of this from the drunk driving campaign back in the 80s and 90s. Um, but when you teach with fear and anxiety, you will probably get short-term um, effects from that. In other words, it will work for, on the short-term level. But long-term, what happens is oftentimes because there's anxiety and fear, what happens when we have anxiety and fear? We try to cope with those things. And therefore, a lot of our coping mechanisms often don't work out in healthy ways, especially when we're adolescents and single adults or young single adults. We just haven't matured enough to develop some healthy coping mechanisms, especially around sexuality. So this is my issue with even like some of the problems that we have with dysfunction around pornography viewing and, um, you know, some of the legitimate issues that we have in our culture this this day Oftentimes, I think the way we teach increases anxiety, increases shame, and therefore, you know, you've got young men and young women who have turned to pornography, and now they listen to a talk where they're very much shamed because they've done that, and instead of focusing, again, on the 5% message of the atonement, their fear and anxiety goes up, and then the likelihood of them turning to a mechanism that will help them cope, which pornography does short-term then the likelihood goes up. And so you can see how we almost become part of the problem. And that's so concerning to me because I think we all would agree that we want individuals to have sexual healthy relationships with themselves and others. And any, any type of sexual behavior that becomes compulsive or uh, problematic to yourself or to a relationship is not, does not fall under that category. And so I think we all have a similar goal, but how we get to that goal I'm not sure we're all on board with. 
Okay, so Mormon Matters listeners are awesome, and they want to help change the discourse. So we want this positive messaging. I love your idea that we should frame it in terms of wisdom and good judgment. That's our theology versus fear and anxiety and all that stuff. I just can't imagine a lot of what we've talked about here ever finding a place on Sundays. <laughs> so what would you guys recommend for our listeners to, to do? Well, I was asked um, to teach the young women in my ward on the law of chastity when I was in the young women's program. And I took a completely different approach, which was rather than, you know, I, I first clarified that that the young women understood what the terms meant, like petting and, you know, for the longest time as a young woman, I didn't even know what petting right. was. Right. I've heard that. <laughs> That's Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and masturbation. I just clarified what the terms were and I kind of went over, you know, um, and I, I think I'm trying to remember now. It was a little while ago. I think I clarified what the law of chastity was. Okay, then I asked them to really think about what was the way that they wanted to relate to their sexuality and what they wanted for themselves in terms of a relationship down the road. And I was really asking them to think about. And part of it was writing for themselves, and part of it was sharing. But I was really trying to put them more in the position of being agents, of being you know, thinking for themselves with respect to their own bodies, their own sexuality, the kind of relationship they hope to have at some point, and you know what it was that they thought was important and how they imagined that they could devalue themselves in this way, meaning that they would see themselves sort of betraying themselves, essentially. So I was just trying wow. to generate a discussion that was less rule focused. I mean, I kind of gave a nod to it so that I could clear it with the young women president. <laughs> yeah, right. I did what I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Right. Nice. But I but I also wanted them to really think about what mattered to them. What was it that they hoped for because I think we talked to young women so much in the frame of being acted upon and being, you know, clean and pure enough and so on to be wantable, but not around what do you want? What matters to you? What would be an expression of your um, desires, um, and how would you like to relate to your sexuality and to someone else? And, you know, young women really tended to desire and want a context of commitment. And I mean, at least that's what they talked about. And in my experience, in my research, you know, the, the, the women that I interviewed, everyone that I interviewed for my dissertation believed that the law of chastity was important. These were all active members of the church who had grown up in the church. The difference was really around how much they claimed the law of chastity as a standard that they felt actually um, was congruent with what they wanted for themselves right, right. as opposed to, I need to do this to keep a man, get, to have a man want me to have the bishop not think I'm, you know, an um, an unworthy person and to not have God think I'm an unworthy person. When they were doing it from that like reactive trying to earn their desirability, they actually were less likely to obey the law of chastity. They were more vulnerable to succumbing to what the man they were dating wanted from them, mm -hmm. wanted from them sexually, and they weren't consulting their own desires in any of it. They were really consulting what was wanted from them and trying to manage this you know, keeping themselves desirable. Women who saw it as really about what do I want, and this is congruent, the law of chastity is congruent with what I want for myself. 
they were very comfortable setting lines and saying, this is what I want and don't go beyond it. And it doesn't matter that you took me out on a date. I don't want to kiss you. And so I'm not going to. Meaning they were just much more comfortable asserting their own desires. And that's really partly what we can shape differently in how we talk to young women is referencing their own desire in their relationships and in their um, sexuality. Terrific. Did it go well? And Yeah, and it did you, go you well. And you didn't get any blowback from other no. leaders? Okay. I, no, I, I really uh, didn't. That's fantastic. Yeah, because, I mean, maybe it was just what the young women were sharing with me, but what they were sharing was, you know, I do feel a lot of pressure sometimes, but I really know that for myself, I want to save this for marriage. I want someone who, I want a committed, I mean, they didn't use these words because they were young women, but, you know, there was more like, I think it'd be really awesome if we both have waited till marriage. It'd be totally, you know, right, <laughs> that's right. how they were talking. Yeah, but sure. they were basically saying, I want an exclusive, um, I, I want to to wait until marriage. And that's exactly the kind of sexuality that's most appealing to me. Awesome. So, so, you know, then I was really talking to them about being true to their desires and being true to that for their own sake and that they owed it to themselves and to not um, betray their own integrity and their own desires for their lives. And I so, can see this totally yeah. working for young men, too. That is a wonderful framing. So all the young men leaders and bishopric members and things like that, I can see that as a wonderful way to do it. So thank you for sharing. And the I just have one more really quick oh, okay. thought, sure. again, which is that, you know, as as members of the church, we do lots of, of challenging things. I mean, we we sacrifice and, and do things that are hard all the time. Whenever you do anything from a frame of I should do it because I, you know, I'm be a good person if I would do it, it's a million times harder than, okay, this hard thing is something that I ultimately want. It's something I want for myself. I choose it. I believe it will work for my betterment or be good for my family and the people that I care about. But you're in a, a state of being an actor. It's much, much easier to do hard things when you're really owning the desire. So I think sometimes just the, the the discourse around should is just not as useful as what do I really want? What are my goals? What is a reflection of who I am in the world as a moral being? It's a more powerful way to talk to people. Love it. Adding to what Jennifer just said as far as the shoulds versus you know, more legitimate reasons for doing it, I think oftentimes sexuality is posited in a way of, we should follow the commandments or we're doing it for the sake of Heavenly Father. And I think that that's not necessarily that useful. I think that Heavenly Father wants us to do it for ourselves, right? When I think of myself as a parent, I don't want my children to be sexually healthy for me. Right. I want them to be sexually healthy for themselves, right? And so awesome. that they can, they can, you know, go on and have a good life, hopefully with somebody and, and share that part of themselves. So, I think that's part of that should language. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that when we're speaking to any type of audience, whether it be a young women's group, young men's group, um, a congregation, relief society, class, whatever, there will be people in there who have already not met the standard, right? And so um, whether it's, you know, the 15-year-old who's already had a sexual encounter or um, whatever, whatever it may be. And so I think that to add to Jennifer's thoughts, it's that idea of what do you want for yourself, even though you've made possibly some mistakes along the way. In other words, how, what, what have you learned about 
from your mistakes, right? Nice. And not just not just assume that nobody has made any mistakes. Because these are the types of messages that when I hear clients who, um, and even friends, I mean, not just clients that talk about, you know, well, I was in that lesson and I already knew that I had crossed that line and therefore I didn't even find the lesson applicable to me. And, you know, so who cares what I do from here on out? That That is not a useful way to, you know, minister to those who haven't necessarily followed the quote unquote rules of Mormonism, right? So do you say, do you just make sure your messaging leaves a room for hopefulness in there or do you actually explicitly address? Now, some here in this room may have already had XYZ experience. I want to talk to you now or I want to make sure you feel included or you are you just aware yourself? Do you, do you think it helps to draw attention to that? I always draw attention to it, and I do this even as just a participant, whether it's in Sunday school or religious nice. study myself. Good, you good. know, I would say, well, we have to be careful because we don't know everybody's stories in here, or we can, you know, I can say, well, I just know from my own personal experience that I've known people, and you know, of course, this is tough because you don't. It's not necessarily appropriate to share your own stuff, and you may not want to, or should you have to do that, but just to draw attention to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of different stories in this room and what, especially when it comes to sexuality and therefore, um, you know, how do we posit this in a way that we can all continue to evolve and grow and draw closer to God um, through this kind of concept, which is the law of chastity and the atonement, you know, and just this idea of personal progression. Cause I'm not sure that any of us will make it out alive without having some type of sexual mishap, whether it's forced upon us or whether it's of our own doing or whether, um, cause I, and I would even include in this some of what Jennifer was mentioning before, as far as not even being in touch with our sexuality. I see that as a sexual mishap. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a sin, but it's, it's, it's in the way of our progression. Yeah. Right? And anything that's in the way of our progression kind of keeps us from our, most divine selves, which I think I think what we're all trying to get to is that invitation to be like God. And so that's I think great. that that's really useful to frame it in that way and to not just make assumptions, which I think oftentimes the young men and young women are addressed as if they're all still virgins. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think that that's useful to those who have, you know, either explored in ways that and again, it depends on how they see themselves because there's some kids that, that are having sex and they don't really see that big of a deal with it. And there's other kids who are masturbating and are like completely over the top with shame, you know. So right. the spectrum runs wide, not only in behavior, but in personal perception. And so you just don't know how the kid is interpreting what you're saying to them. Yeah, yeah. And that leads me, I think, to this other point, which is, I think, another way that we don't necessarily do a good job about teaching about sexuality is that we tend to lump all sexual sin into one big bowl of, well, of, of that, of just calling it sin. And we don't complicate the spectrum very well. Mm-hmm. So in other words, this idea that, you know, sexual sin is next to murder, which I knew I grew up with and was even talked to about personally when I was going through some of my own repentance issues complicates things because having sex with a consensual partner, let's say at the age of 16, albeit I think we would all recognize that that's probably not the most 
smart or best thing to be doing for yourself, you know, at that age is widely different from being a pedophile, you know, or being a rapist Mm -hmm. or, and, and when you lump it all together, uh, that this is where we get, I think some of this shaming that is really inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so again, positing it correctly, you know, and making sure that as bishops and as young women leaders and young men leaders, we're talking to our people and even just in regular congregations, because I know there's many adults who still struggle with these things as far as understanding the wide spectrum of things and the reasons why we do things. And that's why I take issue sometimes, too, with this idea that we tell the young kids that if you're going to do anything sexual with somebody who you're not married to, that has nothing to do with love. That's only about lust. And that was mm-hmm. talked about in this enzyme talk. And I don't know that that's fair. I don't, I don't know that a 17 year old who's totally infatuated with her boyfriend or his girlfriend. I mean, I th- they think they're in love, you know, mm-hmm. and who are we to tell them they're not in love. Right? Right, and so, right. and mm-hmm. so, and yes, they may be doing things that we're not comfortable with, or maybe that we all would agree they shouldn't be doing quite yet, you know, but, but to posit that and kind of this demeaning, like, you know, you're just selfish and you're just um, doing something awfully wrong to this other person. I think, Again, shames it at a level that is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't yes. know if you need to clarify that more. Oh, but. Amazing. Okay, guys. Um, boy, I've, we're, we've gone kind of the length that I was hoping that we would for this episode, but I definitely don't want you to leave anything out that uh, that you wanted to to bring in. Here's the one piece that for sure. Elder Callister leads his article off with, "When the Lord declares something, it trumps." you know, psychology, it trumps science, it's this or something. And and so he's trying to make a point that, you know, the Lord's law of, of chastity or, you know, the way you should be sexual is, is clear and unambiguous and, and don't let anything complicate it here. And yet here with YouTube, it's so clear that there's so much wisdom here, that there's so much pain and, and, you know, unfortunate things that happen with bad messaging. How do you guys... I, I guess somehow or other, I, I just want to say, how would you articulate to somebody when they when they would declare what he kind of declares at the beginning and still say, but there's it's important that we also listen to the culture and and the best studies and things like that at the same time. How how do you guys like justify your your profession in the in the face of a prophet declaring? Well, gosh, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting the way you're saying the question. I don't justify my profession. I don't worry so much about that <laughs> in the sense that, I mean, I think that, let me just say what's on my mind around what you're saying. I mean, I think the bigger question is how do you justify challenging what authority, what a, you know, a moral authority has said to you? And how do you justify disagreeing with it or right. saying, good, I think good. you're wrong, Right. Because, I mean, I think that's what he's suggesting that psychologists might do or uh, mental health workers. My personal opinion is that it is spiritually immature to just take what is offered to us as the truth. Meaning, I don't think that God would see that as good enough. And I think we are enculturated into the idea that obedience is sort of the hallmark of spiritual goodness. But I think... You know, it's really integrity that's the hallmark of spiritual development. And integrity includes, you know, 
hearkening and listening to what wiser others offer to us and, you know, sometimes um, deferring what we want more immediately for what we really believe in our hearts is better for us. And that might look like obedience, but it is more of a moral act of deferring to somebody else's wisdom or, you know, um, prophetic, you know, um, yeah. statement. Mm, right. So, but I would say that doesn't mean that just whatever gets offered to us is the truth. And so I think some of the, the conversation on the internet has been really around this struggle that it's, it's not so, this is how I've interpreted it. It's not that people necessarily thought that Brother Callister's talk was so phenomenal, but the critique of it was threatening to something that they needed to defend. And therefore they needed to find a way to justify it because not that they need to, they felt so strongly about what Elder, Elder Callister was saying necessarily, but more that, you know, who are mental health workers to come in and say this is a problem when a general authority has said this and it was printed up right in the ensign. Right. And I think that I personally believe that God wants us to bring our judgment and our experience and our best, uh, you know, our best judgment to these kinds of situations. And it's easy for me who sits with clients day after day who struggle with these things to see the cost of this kind of message. It's very easy to see. I get very passionate about it sometimes because it feels so costly when something like this gets printed up because I, I see the fallout and the fallout can also be very private in the couples that don't know where to go for help that, you know, that just the sort of, don't know how to manage their sexuality in a way that is congruent with their desire to be good people. So I guess I, I feel comfortable with the challenging of it because I want our church to be better. I want us to continue to evolve as a moral group. And um, I'm not saying that I have all the answers by any stretch, but I do think the struggle around what is right and wrong and the sort of struggle within ourselves to assert what we believe is right around our sexuality, our God-given sexuality and the compass of um, the spirit and the church, is that's an important, very important process. And so I guess that's my response. Awesome. And you almost, you close your, your article, uh, your blog post on this thing pretty much in that same vein uh, Natasha would you share your your feeling on your, your hope for what the church might do yeah well I I think that you know as Mormons the the concept of opposing principles is is actually very ingrained in our scripture and in our in our doctrine and although we want life to be simpler than having opposing principles. I mean, right from the get-go, you know, with Eve in the in the Garden of Eden, you know, she's got kind of two opposing principles at her disposal. Well, and Adam did too, but, you know, Eve was the one who acted upon it. And so two kind of directions that seem to be good and she has to choose. Um, and we see that all throughout our, our scriptural stories. It's what makes scripture interesting, quite frankly. Um, is is how people have to make moral and ethical decisions when there are good things in front of them, but they might have to choose something that either seems wrong or is wrong at certain times, but then is right in certain times, or um, 
two good things, you know, they have to choose between, but might send them in two very different directions. So I think this is a struggle that is to, to quote Jennifer's, which I like this idea of maturity to, to, for all of us to get to a point to be spiritually mature. It's part of grappling with these types of issues. And I, you know, and just recently we've had good kind of, um, I think messages from the pulpit. I mean, Oakdorf himself made a, a really interesting discussion on, you know, how we've made mistakes in our past. We're, we're noticing a lot of these uh, messages coming from LDS.org around some of our past issues and how we're going to frame those moving forward and mistakes we've made as a people, mistakes we've made, um, you know, interpreting doctrine. Um, I mean, I agree with, with uh, Elder Callister in the sense that you know, if if God was sitting in front of me and saying, you know, Sister Parker, this is how this is, uh, I don't, I can't think of anything that would trump that. But the problem is that we're all interpreting God through each other. And we do that as a community and we do that as a culture and we do that with biases and we do that with true revelation. And, and so it's complicated. And so I don't mean to disrespect Elder Callister or any of our leaders. I think that our leaders are incredible people. Um, some of the best people I've ever come to know. And I understand that the time commitment and the energy and the the dedication that they've put forth for those members of the church is, is grand. And I know that uh, I'm sure Elder Callister, the last thing he would want to do is cause harm to people in, in our culture. In right. fact, I, I would guess that that's exactly the opposite. He's wanting to protect and help. So it's not about intention. It's not about personal attack. It's about education. And it's about understanding that all of us, myself included, should be open to challenge and should be open to um, different ways of of seeing things, because that's part of this eternal progression journey that we're all on. And um, and hopefully we can do that through the principles of ward councils and, um, you know, councils in general that we've been talking so much about in leadership trainings over the last few years and looking towards things such as uh, science and personal experience and parents and all these things that that help us kind of come to an understanding of what God's will might be. And I think that's very important and, and such and again, the opposing principles, which are not always opposing, but this idea of obedience versus personal revelation and how sometimes those go completely hand in hand and sometimes not so much or not in ways mm-hmm. that we might assume or not ways in what it might, we might assume for other people, right? In other words, I assume this means this for me, but do I have the right then to assume that that's for everybody the for same? Everybody. Right, good call. So those are just all things that I think – um, to Jennifer's point, as part of spiritual maturity. And I don't mean to be you know, disrespectful, but like you mentioned at the beginning, Dan, this was brought to my attention a year and a half ago, and I wrote several pieces uh, privately to people in leadership. And so I was surprised to see this come out in the Enzyme. And, um, and basically, know, I, basically the same form that when it was same given. Same form, yeah, yeah. right. And also that I'm not you know, I see it as part of my moral and civil duty to share of my wisdom and to speak up when I feel that those around me are hurt. That's part of my moral upbringing as a Mormon woman myself. And I think that's what Jennifer is speaking as well when she speaks of 
the hurt that she sees and um, the pain that we that we witness and that we're privileged to witness because people open up to us. So I, I take that that privilege seriously and I see it just as part of my role to to stand up for that pain and to acknowledge it and to validate it and to try to be part of the education process to yeah. hopefully stop it if if at all possible because I think it's unintended and I think it's unnecessary. Well, I sure appreciate the two of you and how you hang in there and you're at this every single day and you're discouraged, but you're not, you're not so discouraged that, uh, that this isn't a body and a, a group of people and these aren't issues that are worth, uh, worth the pain that comes with them as well uh, as you struggle. So thank you so much. Any final thoughts from either of you? Anything you wanted to reiterate? I, I would just say I feel very encouraged by the level of discussion that's happening around these issues. And I mean, I don't think these were conversations that we could have had when I was growing up. And so I, it is somewhat of a painful growth process, but I do think it's valuable what we are as a community grappling with. And so, you know, I'm encouraged by people's, what's the way to say it? People's, um, desire to really sort through these issues and to figure out what they really believe is right, even if they see it differently than me. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I also would just second, I think what Jennifer started this whole conversation with is that I find so much of our doctrine around sexuality so positive and so pro-sex. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that every religious culture can claim that. And I'm so excited to to keep that dialogue going and and for us to continue to not only sexually mature, but spiritually mature as a culture at large. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I was pointing towards in your pot is is this just communicate, look at, I know there's different levels of comfort with this, but we all have the same goals. (laughs) And you're, you know, and we can just kind of convince them that our hearts are in the right place and you guys with your training and them with, you know, their life experience and things like that. Nobody is here to trump anybody else, but, you know, hopefully all of our, you know, just somehow communicate that, you know, I hope that, you know, my desire to widen this discussion will be something that you'll honor and, and, and I'll certainly make sure to, rein myself in maybe from going the full Monty, you know, not the full Monty, that wouldn't be very good. But so anyway, the the whole idea of, you know, if we can somehow communicate the goals, understand where we have these discomfort levels and each of us kind of meet in the middle, I I think it's going to be great. And you guys model that so wonderfully. Thank you for everything. I'm, I'm going to, as I edit this and as I listen to it afterwards, I'm going to write down some of these phrases and I don't know if, if this is works for anybody else, but I kind of have a little notebook that I carry at church for, for phrases or little one, two, threes sometimes that I that I whip out when I'm quietly back there in the Sunday school corner fuming about something or just saying this is going haywire and and so I hope that that's something our listeners can kind of do just to pick those those ways to start a discussion or something here that that might be good and I, I hope that this podcast can serve that to some degree. Jennifer and Natasha, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks Dan, it was a real pleasure.
Listeners, thanks for all that you do. Thanks for the financial support for Mormon Matters. It's so, so lovely. I just, uh, such a privilege to, to receive the support that way, as well as through your comments and the discussions that we have going around these different things. So I please invite you to come to the blog, and I'll make sure that Jennifer and Natasha get some kind of notification if you make a comment that's directed directly to one of them. We'll, we'll call on them to hopefully... Uh, be available for you here at the blog and until then I'll just say good night good night everybody thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website her online courses information about her upcoming events information about her free Facebook group and more thank you for being here